We all derive a lot of meaning in our careers by the ability to unleash innovation by building networks that support demand as fast as it can grow and new experiences and things. And so for us, it's been, there's a lot of passion there. And so the innovation is, is, is not for its sake. It's the innovation there because we love solving problems. Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And while we work on technology policy, it doesn't mean we always understand it. So uh, my co-host, Jackie, is <laughs> the technology is not working today. So it's, uh, unfortunately, you're going to just be stuck with me. So I think, as you know, this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And this episode is about the internet and broadband infrastructure, the the engineering or the guts behind what we all take for granted and what so many of us are relying on so heavily these days. We're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of how these systems uh, actually work and I think I'm going to learn a lot, uh, and I hope you will too. So we've got a great guest for that. Uh, Rob Raquel works as the Vice President of Network Infrastructure at Comcast, one of the leading uh, internet providers in the U.S., where he and his team design and build the routing, switching, and optical infrastructure for Comcast's cable business. He's an early adopter and technologist. He's authored standards and technologies such as IP multicast and IPv6, He's designed VPN products and technology, and he has experience across the spectrum in the service provider industry from telco to cable to vendor environments. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So, you know, a lot of folks, including myself, really, you know, you, you turn on your computer and you hope the modem, you hope your wireless modem's working and then off you go and somehow something happens. The bits come on and you can surf the web or stream a video or do, do whatever you do and do what we're doing now. And oftentimes we take it for granted that that just magically happens. Uh, but in fact, it's in, you know it, it's incredibly complex. It, it's almost like when Arthur C. Clarke said, any good technology is indistinguishable from magic. This is kind of like magic. It's like, wow. And so I guess I'd just, if we could start off by just saying, um, can you just give us a layperson's description of you know, what happens when I put a URL in my browser? And how, how does Comcast or other network providers play a role in that? What do you do? Sure. So Internet Plumbing 101. So yes, you, you plug a web page into a browser, and uh, the first thing that your computer needs to do is figure out who to ask for all the content that's going to make that web page come up. And so the very first thing that happens before you even send a request out to that server is you got to figure out where that server is. And so much like you know your, your mailing address gives you a, a location so the post office can find you geographically, um, in the internet, you need an IP address, which tells you where you're located topologically on the internet globally. And so the first thing you do is what's called a DNS query. DNS stands for domain name system. And what that does is that translates the name of the of the web page you, you put in, like itif.org, into the IP address where the where the data that that, that web page is built from is hosted. And so you know you send a packet out to a DNS server, and either that is something that your ISP provides for you, or there's many of them you can use publicly that you can configure yourself. And if that DNS server knows the answer because it, it answered that for another customer recently, it'll just tell you. And if it doesn't, it gives you a referral and you know you can go through sort of a hierarchical set of you know requests until you get to the DNS server that's authoritative for that you know name, like itif.org. 
it sends a response back and now you know where to send your request. And that all happens on the order of milliseconds. And so once you know the IP address that you're trying to get to, you, you send data out the wire and inside your home, you, you essentially have information about what are the other hosts within your home. Um, but your home router says, you know, if this is not going to somewhere else in the home, shoot it out on the wire. And so it shoots out on the wire and it enters the internet core where I spend most of my time. Once it gets to the internet core, it, it attaches to a router. And that router has information about really all the reachability on the internet and doesn't have every IP address. IP addresses are aggregated into groups and blocks, much like a zip code or a state will tell the post office, you know, an aggregate where to send a, a piece of mail. But there's hundreds of thousands of entries in a routing table on really every routing, router in the internet. And when you enter sort of the Comcast network where I work, uh, we'll do a lookup to find that destination address. And we'll find out two things. One, we'll figure out if that server is outside of the Comcast network, what is the best exit point to get to it? And then second, how do you traverse the Comcast network in the most efficient way to get to that exit point? And so maybe if we're in, you know, if we're in Washington, DC, maybe the, you know, the server's hosted, you want to exit the network in Chicago. So it'll say, okay, go to Baltimore and you get to the Baltimore router, does the same lookup and it'll say, go to Pittsburgh. And then from Pittsburgh, maybe to Cleveland and to Chicago, at which point it finds the exit point of the network and hands off to another provider or to a data center inside Comcast where that web page can be served. And all of that going to Pittsburgh, Baltimore, so that could be on a Comcast network, but it might not be. Exactly, exactly. So the the the, the goal is you really have two sets of communication. We have um, a set of information about the, our internal network and all the reachability inside our network, and then you have a set of information about all the ways to get to everything outside the network, um, and, and sort of what is the best exit path to take to get there. So if I'm talking to a, I hate to tell you, I'm not a Comcast subscriber. I shouldn't admit that, but <laughs> I'm another company. But if I were a Comcast subscriber and I were communicating with my brother who's in Illinois, who's a Comcast subscriber, and my data then goes to my Comcast router, and then there's uh, some kind of probably coax in the Comcast network that ultimately then goes into some box where it goes to a fiber cable. Could that possibly go all the way on Comcast wires to my brother, or does it not necessarily. Yeah, if you're using a you know a Comcast application or you have one Comcast subscriber talking to another, it never leaves the, the Comcast infrastructure. It stays on that end to end. Okay, okay, that was really uh, you know a, a really good basic kind of kind of one on one take. The other thing I think people are get confused about. I remember early early on when I my first second job out of graduate school was at a thing called the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, OTA, and advisory body for Congress. And we were working on some project there I was helping out, and it had to do with information superhighway, what Al Gore used to call it, or had termed it. And I was like, well, if bits travel at the speed of light, uh, why are we talking about the need for fast networks? It all travels at the speed of light. And that's because it's it does travel the speed of light, but if the hole is really small and going back to Ted Stevens, you know, the pipes get crowded, um, it doesn't go that fast. So can you explain a little bit about the broad in broadband and, and how do we get faster and faster speeds as, as certainly you, Comcast has been doing? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, it, depending on which part of the network you're in, there's a little bit different techniques. In the core of the network, you're, you're entirely fiber and you're using optical. And it's really about using lasers to put more bits over a shorter period of time onto that onto that piece of fiber that you know then you know then you could in the past and so there's different technologies that allow you to use the way the light is polarized the frequency and the amplitude of that light uh, but essentially you're trying to you're trying to build the ability to put multiple sig signals onto that fiber at the same time 
and then you have a receiver that can decode those. And so you're you're multiplexing them on. Today, you know, a piece of fiber, or you know, in 2019, you could get up to about eight terabits on a piece of fiber, right? As we move to the next step, that's going to you know double and quadruple and sort of continue to increase as those technologies that allow you know really sensitive lasers that can receive the data and interpret it, and then um, you know powerful transmitting you know lasers uh, to to send more bits on the wire. But those they continue to they continue to double and quadruple over time. Yeah, that's crazy because I. I, I... My understanding is that's that's sort of similar to Moore's law, uh, doubling on a pretty regular basis of Moore's law being computer chips. It's related, but not exactly the same because it's more about optical uh, advancement. Is that right? That's right. Right. When you have physics involved, and Moore's law doesn't you know it doesn't account for heat or power and some of the other factors that really go into building optical systems, and so it doesn't follow exactly. But there is certainly um. You know, the, the evolution is certainly happening at a scale like that, where it is it is exponentially increasing. Yeah. So, you know, I remember a decade ago when we were working, we've been working on broadband policy for 15 years, but I remember when we were working on it and there was a lot of talk about, well, you know, this issue of net neutrality came up and there was this concern that carriers, uh, ISPs would want to limit the size of their pipe because they didn't want competition with their cable offering. And so you wouldn't want TV to go over there, OT, what's called over the top. And, you know, at the time we thought, no, that's really dumb. That's not, it's a a dumb idea. It's not going to happen because carriers have every incentive to expand the speed of their, their networks. The thing we wondered about though, was you, when the, with the rise of video and not just two-way video, but streaming video. I mean, there are times in our household where we have three people in our household streaming different movies. <laughs> and that's, when you think about it 10 years ago, that was kind of unprecedented. The, the, you didn't really see the broadband pipe as a video pipe. It was more of a internet e-commerce pipe. And then the other pipe was the coax uh, cable streaming one show at a time or 500 shows at a time. How did we get there? How, why, why did that now all of a sudden we can do this and have no problems? Yeah, it's amazing. I think it's a number of factors, right? We talked, you know, obviously we talked about innovation driving network scale and we talked about getting more symbols on the wire. You know, when I started in the industry in the mid 90s, we were moving from T1, which was one and a half megs in the internet core to DS3, which is 45 megs. I think about the, the paths we have in our core between cities now and it's, it's in the multiple terabits per second. You know, in terms of capacity, so that's millions of times larger than it was, and so scale certainly plays a factor. Uh, but not only that, I mean, these days we have tremendous amounts of redundancy, and so when we when we're building networks, we're building networks so you can take out you know nearly any fiber in the network or any router in the network, and not only will you reconverge around that, and services will continue to work often in under a second, but we can handle that capacity even on Friday night when everyone is, you know, is, is consuming, you know, they're, they're over the top video. And so we've got enough redundancy to be able to handle uh, any failure, even during peak. And then layered on top of that, uh, there's lots of software running in the network, right? And so the software in the network is in addition to the routing software that makes the, 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 the network forward traffic and move traffic around, there's, we're looking at telemetry, we're looking at, you know, characterization of what's going on in the fiber, in the routers, in the optics, um, looking at the memory consumption of our infrastructure. And so we're, we're constantly making assessments through software and feeding data so humans can make assessments. So we're auto-correcting issues. And when there is a failure, we're much more quickly directing humans to engage in that in the right sort of fix activity. And so that software is driving a lot of intelligence, reducing outage time. And then on top of that, you look at the over-the-top video today and those application environments as well have a lot of optimization in place. They have a lot of geographic redundancy, 
There's a lot of feedback being sent back to the Overtop video owners. So they're getting real time view into what your experience looks like. And so they, they have the ability to optimize even outside of the network, how that application is being delivered, um, what kind of sort of encoding they're using to get to you um, so, that, so that all these things really work together to create a very smooth experience. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. I'm, and I'm, I assume that's sort of that why it would lead into my next question, the answer to that. But in earlier this summer, ITIF released a report where we looked at the performance of U.S. broadband networks a after the pandemic, in part compared to other countries. And, um, you know, what we found was that actually U.S. networks performed among the best in the world in terms of yeah, this massive shift to be, be kind of like having a freeway system where you're, you've, you know, you've designed and synchronized all the lights for going to work at eight and coming home at six. And now all of a sudden everybody's going to work at noon. You know, the whole patterns were changed where people were online, when they were online, the kinds of things they were doing. And yet, you know, your network performed well, pretty, pretty much everybody's network in the U.S. performed quite well. And I assume it's one thing that you just said, but maybe you can just go into a little bit more detail on that. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, well before COVID, we were making massive investments in the network infrastructure, right? Because we, we want to stay ahead of demand. We want people to be able to drive innovation and new experiences into the network. And it's a, it's it's bread and butter for us. And so that investment has us in a position where I mentioned redundancy, where we can take a lot of outages and not not customers won't feel it. Well, that, that extra capacity is there. And so uh, the fact that we do have fiber cuts and we do get to exercise, you know, our redundancy in the network. Um, and sometimes we'll intentionally take down our infrastructure as well to make sure the redundancy works. And so there's a really active practice around making sure there's available secondary and tertiary sort of um, infrastructure for people to use. Um, when COVID first hit, that meant we had a lot of buffer to really absorb that increased demand inside the core of the network. On the access side of the network, it's a, you know, a diff different sort of ballgame a little bit. You've got in the HFC, you've got um, you know, both downstream and upstream considerations to take care of. Can you say what HFC is? Yeah, in, in cable, um, we have this hybrid fiber coax network where you know, you know the uh, you know your TV often connects by HDMI now, but throughout the house you have coax coaxial cable wired, and our goal is to you know use science as much as we can to put as much signal on that coax as we can, and then it converts into fiber during the access network before you get to the core. But in that part of the network, we had launched some software in uh, just beyond trial right before the shelter in place had happened, um, where we would look at the the sort of radio characteristics on that coax HFC network for all of our subscribers, like every 20 minutes. And so uh, we were able to roll that out to the entire nation very, very quickly and produced, um, I think one of our press announcements said something like more than 35% more aggregate capacity just by optimizing the way we send and receive signals across that coax to give people cleaner signals using available spectrum on that signals. And so, so in terms of incremental video conferencing or schooling from home that occurred, it really helped us absorb as well. So that's a little bit like the the uh, Tesla uh, car, where that you down they'll, they'll download software upgrade, which you know for cars is on. So really, what you're almost doing is you're just having a software upgrade to your network. Is that is that right? You weren't you weren't you were putting in new you weren't putting in new wires in the ground, I guess. I mean, we're constantly building construction, and so we have that capability as well, because you want to respond to that demand and add more redundancy in those things. But in this case, it wasn't really so much as a new software upgrade as much as we're looking at the, the ways that our, our, our equipment was using the network and we would tweak it. So we'd say, rather than using this frequency, use this frequency in the HFC. Okay. Right. In the core of the network, we'd say, rather than put it all on this path, let's load share it over these two paths. And that way we've got more capacity we can use. And so we are constantly sort of milking the network to get more out of it, uh, the existing infrastructure. 
A lot of people, when we when they talk about broadband, you know, the focus is principally on speed. You know, hey, I'm I did a speed test recently, and I think I'm at 65 symmetrical or 65 meg symmetrical. Oh, this is great. But what people oftentimes don't talk about that's what's called latency. In other words, how how quickly uh, uh, something refreshes, and that's pretty important in gaming. If you're on a some kind of real time shooting game on on a video game, you want to be able to make sure that you know it goes quickly. But low latency is going to become a lot more important, especially as we move to what people call the fourth industrial revolution and the, these kinds of applications. How do you see that playing out and what, what's Comcast doing in that space around latency as well as speed? You've already talked about speed, but latency. Yeah. So when I think about latency and we're designing for latency, we really have three sort of different concerns we try to deal with. You have the, the things in the access network and sort of the, the mechanics for how your access network gets traffic onto the network. You have the core of the network and then you have, you know, sort of congestion concerns because one of the things that can cause latency is if you, you know, sort of put too much traffic onto a link. And so... Going through each of the three of those, in the access network, we use a we use a protocol called DOCSIS, and it basically specifies how you uh, signal data onto that HFC, that that hybrid fiber and coax network. Every generation of DOCSIS that you that we deploy, we work to figure out how can we tune that protocol to reduce latency there, because just the you know the 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 um, sharing of that median across the neighborhood can produce some latency while to sort of make sure everyone's getting their traffic onto the network. When you get into the core of the network. Latency is really dominated by distance, right? And so photons travel at two thirds the speed of light and fiber, right? And so you're, to some extent, if you're traveling across the country or traveling across an ocean, you're really dominated by that actual distance. And so for us, we're very careful what fiber pads we pick. Um, and so if you looked at a US map, the lower 48, you looked at sort of the highways and the railways, that looks very similar to sort of the, the dominant fiber pads in the US as well. Um, not only because those are a lot of the rights of ways, uh, but because those are sort of the efficient routes we consider geographical barriers and those sorts of things. And so we're always looking to make sure we've got um, great paths picked and then great secondary paths. So if that one ever gets cut by a backhoe or, or some a storm or something, you know, you're not going all the way around the country to sort of route around it. You're staying as efficient as you can. From a congestion standpoint, like I said, we're building our, we're building our network to be able to withstand one or even multiple failures um, at the same time during our peak, you know, our peak usage periods. And so because of that, we have a lot of extra capacity in nominal state to be able to use. And so by doing that, we sort of can assure, even if there's a large event like a gaming download or, you know, a shelter at home that happens, we're able to absorb that without creating congestion in the core. You mentioned earlier, and I, and I think it relates to this question about congestion and management, and and, and that's uh, in almost every sector with technology now, people are fo focusing on AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning. You don't hear about it as much in the ISP world, but are you doing much in AI and how's that helping the network management process? Oh, absolutely. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, you know, we have, we have AI and supervised machine learning sort of working in the background in all parts of our network infrastructure. In the access layer, we have something we call Octave, and that is uh, what I mentioned earlier, that software that's looking at really over 20 million cable modems, you know, over the course of 10 or 20 minutes and uh, making decisions about how best to uh, program them to send and receive data so that we're maximizing throughput. So if there's any impairments in sort of the way signals are being processed, they can, they can adjust that very quickly. And that's driving all the capacity we can get out of the coax, you know, the HFC in, the, in there. Um, in the core of the network, we have something we call the smart network platform. And that's processing millions of bits of data, whether they be log messages coming out of our routing equipment or characteristics of our fiber. Uh, but millions of, of bits of data are coming in 
and being processed to try to look at number one, can we, um, if there is an event, how do we correlate it? So we take many different signals we got that said there's something went on and help us pinpoint exactly where that is. So we can either use software to correct the problem or more quickly direct humans at, you know, taking corrective action. Um, it's also looking at, you know, patterns to sort of see, um, you know, uh, we found we found that certain lasers, certain optics, we can figure out they're going to fail within the next 48 hours by watching the way the laser will skew and sort of its power will ramp up and down. And using machine learning techniques, we sort of found that there is a signature there. So now we can find out that a, a piece of optical equipment is going to fail a day or two days ahead of time so we can make that replacement on our timetable rather than on the equipment's timetable when it fails, right? And so lots of lots of software sort of uh, you know learning and making recommendations about you know what to do in the network yeah no that's that's very cool we have been uh, at itif and also our our sort of branded center uh, center for data innovation we've been focusing on ai and ai policy for a whole n- number of years and you know one of the things we argue is that yes privacy is important but but so is the ability to use data for important functions like keeping networks working do you have any concerns about uh, you know i know you're not in the government relations shop you're you're actually running in the network but you know congress is seriously thinking about some kind of national privacy bill which we we support the intention we're not we we certainly don't support a european style model do you have any thoughts about that or any concerns about that where congress might be careful uh, of not going you know, I'm sure there are good conversations to have. Um, it's not really my area. Um, I can tell you for, for what we're doing, um, I can get a lot of great data to help optimize experiences for everyone, regardless of application, by looking at tonnage and the network, you know, holistically as itself. And that sort of gets me out of ever having to look at um, even a specific application, much less a specific user's applications. And so sure. uh, we're making a lot of hay without sort of getting you know, into that space. So I guess one last question before I ask you the final question. You know, there's been a push for, uh, you know, a number of folks, particularly folks who kind of think that networks are like roads and should be uh, operated and owned by by the public or by government and the like. And and the model tends to be municipal broadband uh, where, where a city would do this. And, you know, listening to to what you've described, Rob, you know, it, it strikes me this is a, this is a, an industry that, number one, has a lot of scale, and number two, there's an enormous amount of technological innovation and hard work and and R and D and, and uh, you know management of technology that goes in. It's not it's not like just hey I'm I got a computer in in the in the back office here and I'm going to put some wires out and hopefully the thing works. Um, can you say a little bit more about you know why wh- why if that's right I think it is you know wh- why do you think that's the case and why why is it that we need sophisticated technology companies to be running our networks? Yeah, so if I think about the, you know, the few hundred people on on my team that, you know, sort of develop and deploy and and make the design decisions for the network infrastructure at Comcast, I mean, we all derive a lot of meaning in our careers by the ability to unleash innovation by building networks that support demand as fast as it can grow and new experiences and things. And so for us it's been there's a lot of passion there. And so the innovation is 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 not for its sake, it's the innovations there because we love solving problems. And I think the, the passion that you see in the organization is really what's driving um, the software decisions we make around using AI and ML. We're, we're out there to, um, to really help society move forward. And so I think that meaning is, uh, has been enough of an impetus on its own that it's, it, it drives a tremendous amount of creative thinking, draws fantastic talent to these companies and you know, creates a great work experience. Yeah, I've, I've had the pleasure of visiting the uh, Comcast headquarters. I've visited a number of 
technology company headquarters around the country and uh, in Philadelphia. And I'm, I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but you know, it's, it's an R&D lab partly up there. Uh, it's, uh, you know, they're real engineers that are just, you know, exploring the future. It's, it's not just, hey, I'm running this piece of wire and managing it. It's, it's about the future. Yeah, we really love it. I mean, the ability Comcast gives us to innovate, the autonomy they give us to experiment, you know, in ways that are safe for our customers and uh, and really produce sort of iterative improvements in our infrastructure, whether that be on the you know on X one side of our products or in the network infrastructure. It's um, it's really great. It makes for a place where people really love to to to, to work and and you know learn. So, Rob, last question. You know, sometimes people forget that the internet is actual real wires. Although, hopefully, after this, they won't forget that. And all sorts of things can go wrong. What's the weirdest or oddest source of a service outage you've ever heard about? Yeah. So, when you're building infrastructure that sort of spans from the neighborhood to sort of the internet core, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to find some interesting things. And on my team at our Christmas party every year, we actually sort of pull up notes from some of the tickets of some of the craziest stuff we saw. And so, I'll give you a couple. Um, we had a weed, we had a guy running a weed whacker on interstate 95 <laughs> hit a fiber tube one time that took out, that created a, you know, a fairly large and complex fiber cut, right? It was just some guy cutting the weeds in the, in the median of the road. Um, luckily we had fiber that could route around it and things, but took down a lot of fibers. We had a, uh, there was a birthday party in a hotel one time and those foil helium balloons, someone let go of it. And ended up shorting out some electrical circuitry at the at the roof of the uh, the hotel in the lobby, and that happened to be a circuit that was powering some some equipment that was used to sort of run cable through the neighborhood that was adjacent to that. Um, you see all sorts of stuff, and so for us, trying to build a network that is defended against every kind of outage is impossible because they're gonna, something's going to come up, whether it's a a squirrel chewing through something, a pole fire, you know, you're going to find these kind of things. And so for us, it's about building the resilience. That no matter what kind of wacky thing happens, you know the, the impact is minimal or or non impactful to our customers. Yeah, I think as we have learned in the last six months, re- resilience is probably uh, an underappreciated aspect of our society and something we're all going to have to be focused more on as we go forward. So, Rob, thank you so much, and that's it for this week. If you liked it, be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. And you can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us at Twitter, Facebook, and ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 